What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone. I just want to give you a quick heads up that my new book, The Business of Belonging, How to Make Community Your Competitive Advantage, is now available anywhere where you can buy books on Amazon and any bookstore. It is the complete collection of everything I've learned from the last 13 years and how to build community for your business and all of the frameworks and models that the CMX team has developed to teach businesses how to do this work. It's all in here. I really appreciate all your support. You can go and order it now. I just wanted to give you all a heads up that CMX Summit Rise 2021, our theme this year is Rise, is now open for registration. Already over a thousand people have registered in just the first few days. So we're seeing a ton of people coming out who are now interested in the world of community-driven business. We have an incredible lineup of speakers and experts this year. People like Greg Eisenberg from Late Checkout, Sahil Lavingia, Holly Firestone from Venify, some really incredible people, some of the top experts in the world of community and business. And we have tons more to be announced. We'll have over 60 different speakers. This is the first year as well that all of our workshops are going to be completely free for everybody to sign up. So you'll be able to go deep into how to build your communities in a better, more impactful way. It's going to be the biggest event we've ever hosted at CMX. Just go to cmxhub.com slash summit and you can RSVP for free today. We can't wait to see you all there. Today's interview is with the one and only Richard Millington, my frenemy. We've been working together in the community industry for a very long time. He's the founder of Feverbee, a really amazing resource for community managers that just shares all of his wisdom and all of his experience working with tons of really incredible clients and big enterprise brands. He's published three books and he just published his newest book, Build Your Community, which is a really amazing deep dive into how to create your community, how to design your community strategy. And what makes Rich really different from anyone else in this space is just the level of depth that he goes into in diving into the data and taking a data-driven approach to understanding how to improve communities, how to grow engagement, how to identify gaps and opportunities, how to create content and experiences that are much more specific for members based on where they are in the community member journey rather than just kind of generally trying to engage all of your members all at once. And so there's a ton of really practical case studies and data and insights in this interview. And uh, of course, we riff on some of the big questions in the community industry right now around community technology, around the topic of causation versus correlation when connecting community data back to your business data. Lots of good stuff in here. This is going to be a really good one. You're going to get a ton of value. Let's dive in. And just a quick ask, we are working really hard to put this podcast together for you every week and bring you the top experts in the world of community. We spend hours and hours putting together these shows and curating guests and researching them and making the show great for you. We'd really, really appreciate it if you could just drop a review on Apple and make sure to subscribe anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. Those subscriber numbers and those reviews really help us move up the rankings for podcasts and help us get discovered by more people. So please just take, literally, like pause, just take 30 seconds right now to drop that review and subscribe. We really appreciate it. It'll be a huge help. All right, thanks so much. Let's dive into today's episode. Rich, welcome to the show. 
Thank you. It's great to be here. Of course. We've had many chats over the years at different events, at different online events, at different conferences. We have. We have. We fight on Twitter sometimes, but this is the first time I've gotten you on the podcast. Yeah, it's been a while since we've had a really good fight, I think. So I'm looking forward to this session. That's right. We just had like an actual debate. So we like an organized fight. Yeah, I know. It was amazing. It's like quite, it's a lot more intense than what I thought it would be. Like, I'm like getting really into it. Like, I'm going to crush this guy. But yeah, it's good fun. Like, it's a good format to do. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I know. We should definitely have more community builders do debates. It like forces people to Absolutely. take sides. One thing that we used to do when I used to do like a debate club in high school is you just have the topic, but people don't know what side they're going to have to debate until they have to do it live. Ah, uh, yeah. I'd struggle with that. So then it takes out the personal nature because it's like not about what you believe. It's just like, here's the side of the argument. Now you have to make an argument. And it really forces people to think about the other side of an argument. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. From my perspective on this debate, it wasn't about about the topic. It was that I had to crush you, dude. had to personally (laughs) crush you. That's the whole point of it. That's right. It was mostly (laughs) ego-driven. Awesome. Well, I think most of the people who listen to this podcast probably know you already and the work that you've done with Feverbee and the books that you've written. And now you have a new book, Build Your Community. It's your third book. So you're two ahead of me. So again, I have some catching up to do to really crush you and blow up my own ego. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) your books have been staples in the community industry for a long time. Thank you. I appreciate it. And this one, I have no doubt, is going to become another staple. Having read through it, it's yet another just collection of gold and really deep insights for community builders and Just very, very practical, lots of tables that break down. Like, let me exactly explain how to structure this general idea that I've just told you about. So it's very practical. I think everyone who reads it is going to walk away with like a lot of specific tactics that they can use in their own communities. And of course, it left me with a thousand questions that I would want to dig into (laughs) with you and kind of give everyone a little bit of an idea of what they're going to learn in the book. But maybe let's just start off. I'd just love to hear like what inspired you to write this book and how is it different from the past couple books you've written and what was the experience different writing this one from the past ones? Because I think this is your first one with an official publisher as well, right? Yeah, it was with uh, Pearson. What inspired me to write this book? I wrote this book because I'm so embarrassed by my first book. And not just by like the front cover <laughs> to my first book. No, I think when I wrote the first book, Buzzing Communities, it's amazing to me that people still buy it. But as quite new then. That was, I wrote that in 2012. And there were a lot of things that I believe today that I don't. Mm. Well, there's a lot, a lot of things that I believe back then that I don't today. So back then, if you read the book, I'll talk about every organization needs to build a powerful sense of community amongst their members. I talk about the membership lifecycle. And I think right now I'm a lot more pragmatic would be the nice way of saying it. Like I think for some online communities, and we had a whole debate about this, so I don't want to rehash that. But for some <laughs> communities, like there is, it's important to build a sense of belonging. But for many, like that just isn't the case. And so it's more about what works for that audience. I think the other reason is that I felt there weren't enough specifics that were out there today. Like what's been fantastic over the last five years, especially is that I've been focusing on the data side a lot, collecting all this data, hiring people to like analyze what studies are out there, scrape data, analyzing it. And I've got all these benchmarks I've been using with my clients and all these examples and case studies and stories. And so yeah, it wasn't really out there. And so I wanted a medium to do that. And a book is fantastic. So a lot of the tables are in there, like really specific benchmarks, like how many members should you have in your community? How many members do you need to reach that critical mass of activity? And my process of writing the book 
Well, first, if anyone's looking to write, write a book, I think you've got to decide if it's a big idea book or if it's a textbook. I mean, this, you can overlap a little bit between that, but I think if there's a big idea that you are releasing into the world, which is hard to pull off, but if you get it right, it could be a huge hit and we know examples of that. Or for me, I feel a lot more comfortable with a textbook. Like this is what's working, this is what doesn't work. These are all the examples, the case studies, the data. And so when I write a book, I begin by hiring a researcher. And by the way, here's a fantastic tip. There's a lot of people that are doing PhDs today who are overqualified for every single job except doing research. And so what I recommend you do, these PhDs have access to all like the uh, database of all the academic articles they ever published. They got it for free. You can hire them for around $20 an hour. So I usually, I recruit a couple of them. I give them some questions like, what is the impact of gamification on communities? What are the studies mm-hmm. on ROI of communities at the academic level? And they put together these amazing like detailed research reports. And what's fascinating about this isn't just the research they put together, which is interesting, but the parts of it that agree and disagree of what is generally accepted in the community space. And so I find this really interesting. At times, the academic research is wrong. Like there'll be research on a Chinese Facebook page. You're like, okay, maybe that doesn't apply to all the community space. And there are times where you're like, oh, that's really interesting. And so I collect all the examples, all the research, all the data. And the actual process of writing the book doesn't take that long. It's the research that takes most of the time. And also there's this fantastic book called Telling True Stories. It's an amazing book that basically will help you craft a compelling narrative. Like if you ever read a book, and, P- and, the right- and the author just seems to be able to write in a really compelling way. I think that's there. They get tips from books like that. So then, yeah, I sit down every morning. I write 500 to 1,000 words a day, really bad words as well, until I get to around fifty to 70,000 or so. And then I edit, 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 and then I'm done. And then the publisher says that I'm not done. And then we go through that a few right. times. <laughs> and then we release the book finally into the world and hopefully it becomes a bestseller. But more likely it sells 5,000 copies, 10,000 copies, and we're happy. Yep. That's generally it. Yeah. But it's fun. It's worth doing. That all sounds very familiar. I definitely remember struggling with that conflict of, do I go with a really big idea or do I go with a textbook with my book? I was kind of trying to squeeze both Mm. in and I kept like wanting to do a big idea, but it would turn out to be more of a textbook because at the end of the day, I think both of you and I are similar and wanting to get into the weeds of like, how do you practically do this work of building community? So I think I probably ended up with a bit of a mutant in, in my book of a little bit of both. Yeah. I always thought thought of you as more like the big idea book. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but I feel like you're such an... Ad- How dare you? I feel like that you're such an advocate for this space, right? <laughs> you're so naturally gifted at persuading people, motivating people, broadening the space. I feel like that the big idea was like quite a natural fit. So when I saw the title of your book, I'm like, okay, maybe it's not in line with my experiences, but I get like the idea of the big idea book. And then... When I read it, yeah, it did feel more like, yeah, this is a guide. Yeah. Not a textbook, but it felt more of a guide. So it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I guess I found like we need another person just banging the drum in a book about like the importance of community generally. Like there's a lot of that. We do not. That is true. And it's a little bit of a big idea and advocacy around the industry, but mm. wanting it to be practical. I'd say like the first chapter, maybe two chapters are like the big idea and then it gets into practical. Whereas yours, like, dives right into the practical. Like You're like, I'm going to give you the playbook and then all right, let's dive into the playbook. It's really well done. I just love the weeds. I love being really in like the weeds of it. Like for me, like one of the reasons I do consultancy instead of working for an organization is, A, I don't think an organization would hire me, to be honest. I'm not really a good fit for a lot of how they work. But B, I like the puzzle. Like a community for me, when I approach it, like some people are motivated by like, 
build this amazing sense of belonging. And I wish I was, but I love the puzzle. I love the challenge. Mm-hmm. I love like seeing the end result as well and people getting helped. Um, but for me, it's a puzzle and you've got to figure out the motivation, the technology and putting all those things together. And so mm-hmm. it's so much about going into the weeds. And I feel a lot of information I see in the community space is that a relatively low, mm, it's okay, but it doesn't go deep enough to give people mm-hmm. the exact insights, the words, the messages, the numbers that they need to succeed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, let's dive into the details then. I think there's a lot sure. of really cool things we could jump into. I know like one of the things that you are really passionate about is understanding kind of the psychology of things and applying member psychology to how do you build a better community or actually impact metrics in a meaningful way. So what are some examples of ways to apply psychology to how you build community that a community manager could take and apply to their work today? I mean, building a community, especially in, let's say, a support community, a lot of the communities I'm involved with, not all of them, but a lot. It's such a strange thing. When a brand is building an online community, it's it's sometimes a strange thing because you expect your customers to spend their spare time helping you for free. I mean, that's kind of weird, isn't it? Like no one goes to their their local supermarket and offers to like stack the shelves. It's a profoundly weird thing. But at the same time, people are motivated to do it because they're being paid in things that they appreciate more than money. They're being paid in that feeling of like, oh, I'm having a unique impact here. They're being paid in that idea that I feel I can influence my surroundings. I feel important. I feel recognized. I feel seen. And what a community is in my mind, especially in the brand sense, is that it's an amazing place that it creates this wrap-up that motivates people to do things they would never do. None of us would go home today and then plug into a customer support line to work for free for an organization. But we will go to an online community and answer dozens of questions to help someone else. Even on Twitter, even on Facebook, you know, you and I are probably doing it a lot. Other people listening to us are doing it a lot. So we do that. And I think it's really about understanding those motivations. And to get really specific, um, there's certain motivations that people are more, that are more compelling to most of the audience that, that we're dealing with. So having a unique, useful impact is one of the most important things. Like people want to feel not just they're having an impact, but it's a really unique and useful impact. No one else could have provided the impact that they're providing. And that means often you, we take what's called a asset based approach. I'm sure you've come across this possibly, maybe not, but basically an approach called asset based community development, like ABCCD which is why you try to identify what is the asset that every single person that's visiting the community for the very first day, or even if they're being an expert for a long time, can contribute. What is the best asset they can create for that community? So even if I have no experience in this field, even if I'm entering a sector I know nothing about, I can't contribute an expert blog post, or I can't do all these things that, by the way, a lot of brands are asking every member to do in their community. But what I can do right now today is ask questions, because I know what questions a newcomer has. And that means the next person after me is going to have those questions as well. And the more people that see those questions and see those answers, the more they don't have to contact support, the more they're going to get their answers quicker than elsewhere. The more employees, if it's an employee community, are going to know how to get up to speed really quickly. So the impact of that is huge. So I think the whole magic of what we do, the real skill in building online communities, is being able to persuade every single person to make a unique, useful contribution to that group, or to at least feel like they can make a unique, useful contribution to that group. And so often I go to organizations and we talk about how to motivate people to engage in communities. And they'll start talking about rewards. What can we pay them? What, can, what, what swag can we give them? Or how can we feature them on a billboard or something just like this? But the reality is it's far more subtle and nuanced. Like people don't want their name on a billboard. It's weird. Like if someone offered me to have my face on a billboard in London today, I'd think, 
probably not that I'm insecure about my face, but it's kind of weird. But if, so, if I can just feel like I'm helping some people in a unique way, if I feel like I've made an impact, if I feel like I have unique access, those kind of things are the most rewarding things. And so we can have a deeper discussion about return on investment if you like. But for me, that's what a community is in a brand sense. You're taking and you're creating these motivations that people can't get anywhere else. You're engendering this feeling that people can't get from anywhere else. And maybe that's belonging, but maybe it's also just feeling useful. Maybe it's feeling connected. Maybe it's feeling like they've had an impact. So you're not asking everybody to make the same contribution though, right? When somebody, how would you design your onboarding experiences when you work with clients or the way you describe it in the book to ensure that you're kind of making asks of people that are reasonable given their level of commitment or their comfort in the community or how motivated they are to actually contribute? Yeah, what happens far too often is you join a online community for the first time and either you were dropped in to like a forum-based environment or a meetup-based environment or whatever, and you're just expected to work it out by yourself or you're told, okay, share your expertise or ask a question. But sometimes people don't have questions to ask and they don't have any expertise to share. The way I approach it is that there's certain inflection points where you can have the maximum impact in the shortest amount of time. And so you can try and predict based upon where people came from, what they're likely to do. I've heard of some people having some success with doing that. I personally don't find it that useful. Where I think the biggest impacts are is first, when someone has first joined that community for the very first time, if you can get them to make certain kinds of contributions really quickly, and there's lots of great data on this, they're far more likely to become a regular active member. So the introduce yourself thread, honestly, I was really against it for a long time. And then the data said I was wrong. So I changed my thoughts on that. But yeah, it's useful. If people introduce themselves, they're far more likely to stick around in the um, online community. But that depends upon the follow-up that they have. But also the other big impact is, can you get them to ask a question or share an experience? Mm -hmm. Can you get them to create a discussion? And newcomers typically, when they join a community, they're doing it because they have a question that they want to ask. And so where we go wrong in the onboarding process is you'll join a community and then you'll get all these pop-ups or unique messages being, you know, this is where you can read your notifications and this is where you can read your messages. And it's like, people just want to ask the freaking question. They don't want to get bombarded. And if your technology is so complicated to use that you need a whole tutorial guide, you've got the wrong technology in place. And so the way we approach it is first looking at all of the members in the community, dividing them to segments based upon what they participated in in the past. People that have just joined, people that are long-term inactives, people that are top members, irregulars, and then figuring out what is the contribution they're most likely to make. So the top experts, they should be getting messages and a banner, by the way. We can talk more about banners, but they should be getting uh, messages and a banner. It's like, what is the top experience you can share this week? What have you learned in the last month? Because they're the most highly motivated individuals. They have a stake in really getting connected with other members of that community. People that are lurking, very often, they just want to be the best learners that they can be. And so they want to read the top five posts. And a newcomer, for example, they haven't seen all of the most popular content that's being shared in the community. They don't need to see what's new. They need to see what's the most popular stuff that's being in that online community ever. It's a very different thing that they need. Someone that has been around for a while and is kind of participating, but kind of not. These are the people that need that nudge. These are the people that gamification works best for. These are the people that certain kinds of rewards works best for. So we try and map out all of the segments based on how much people are participating at the moment and then design unique journeys for each of them, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you're breaking down instead of saying like, we're launching this engagement campaign for everyone in our community. You're getting more specific and saying there are people who are new to the community, people who are engaged, people who 
became unengaged over time. And each one of those may have a different kind of engagement program that you implement in order to hopefully increase activity amongst that group. Yeah, absolutely. And there's certain nudges you can put in place and certain, yeah, just certain inflection points, but different groups need completely different things. Like a newcomer to a community, most often they want information right now. And anything you put in the way of them getting information right now is going to hurt. And a lot of these onboarding pop-up journeys or any of those kind of things, when they work best, it's not when someone, not before someone has participated, before they've, when they've just joined. It's after they've made their first post or the second post. Then they're interested in learning, hey, what group should I join? Should I join a newcomer group with a mentor? Should I follow the top members of that online community on Twitter and other channels? There's always really interesting things that you can put in place. But you have to just really think about it from the member's perspective, like really interview them, really use like Hotjar or whatever tools you have, really analyze what they're doing. Um, and then you can design a journey that's so much better. And most organizations, by the way, are doing a really bad job of this and they don't know it. Yeah, because they don't have that information. They don't know it. What's making them do a bad job of it? Why are they underperforming? If you're not sure what to look for, you don't know you're doing a bad job. And a lot of the benchmarks we sometimes share in the community space are based upon a lot of people that are doing a bad job. Okay. And so I think the problem with a lot of community professionals and like everyone does an amazing job, but I feel so many of us had to learn on the job because there was no guide, right? Sure. We learned on the job. And that means that there's knowledge gaps that we have because we picked sure. things up as we went along, but we never studied a body of knowledge. And the onboarding journey and how people actually engage in communities on those things. So we copy what everyone else is doing, but a lot of people aren't doing it particularly well. So there's a lot of things we can do a lot better there. So if we're not aware of where people are dropping out in the process, if we're not aware of how members feel at different stages of the process, if we're not using Crazy Egg or Hotjar to see exactly what people are clicking on, how they browse around the community, we didn't have anywhere near the depth of insights that we should have to design the journeys the right way. And so there's lots of opportunities to do a better job. We just need to understand that the way most people are doing it isn't good and we shouldn't be benchmarking against them. Mm. One thing that's interesting in one of your strongest skill sets is how data-driven you are in your analysis of communities and how you come up with these solutions or identify gaps in communities. And for a lot of community professionals... The truth is they're not very data-driven. Like I'm that way. I didn't get into mm. this work because I really feel drawn to the data elements. I've, I've had to get good at that over time and I'm, it's still a journey for me, frankly. But I got into it because I love the interaction part. I like talking to people. I like motivating people. I like facilitating discussions, hosting events. And I think that's true for a lot of community builders. So I think like what you're describing is certainly a gap that a lot of community professionals have. But perhaps part of that is that we also just don't have specialization in community roles right now. I think that's something I'm starting to see form. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Where like maybe the same person shouldn't be doing all of the engagement and all of this data analysis that is a very unique and difficult skill set to learn, especially if it doesn't come naturally to you. We're starting to see now, I think, teams developing where you have a community engagement specialist and then a kind of community operations or community analytics specialist. Yeah, I agree. And I think maybe this is why consultants exist, right? Because there are some skills that you don't have in-house and some skills you don't want to hire a full-time person for. So sometimes it helps to have an outside person that can come in and can benchmark all these and highlight. And I think a lot of the work that I and maybe the other consultants do is provide that wide angle lens on the space, you know, knowing what so many other kinds of communities are doing and being like, hey, you're doing a good job here, but these are your blind spots at the moment. This is what you can improve. And you can build a whole strategy around that, but it's just bringing in outside skills that maybe you just don't have today. 
So it helps to have that skill in-house, but sometimes it's just not feasible to recruit someone for that. So sure. yeah, I agree. Yeah. You're always going to have gaps, but yeah, I agree. I think it's a gap, but I think as the community industry is becoming more popular as a career path now, it's also starting to attract people with different kinds of skill sets and oh, yeah, for sure. people with more of an operational background or a data analysis background. And, and that's really exciting to see. Yeah. I think we're going to see a lot like higher performing communities come as a result of that. I think we're seeing a really interesting clash right now of people that came from the space because they're like you. They're like true believers. They're passionate about the interactions, the engagements and those kind of things. And just that feeling of community. And then people that come from more maybe the operation side that see a community as a program to be run. I think you were tweeted about this. You gave, you wrote a good tweet about this just the other day. But yeah, you're seeing like a split or like a clash. And it's a clash that's going to become a bigger issue, but also prevent an opportunity as well. Because these groups are different in their backgrounds, their mentality. And I think we need them both. But integrating them both is going to be a challenge at times, I think. Yeah, I think it's a big opportunity. I'm really excited about it. We're hiring for a community operations person now. And even just like designing the oh, awesome. role and thinking about like, what does this look like for somebody to own data and operations and processes specifically for a community the same way a marketing ops can do that for marketing and engineering ops does that for your product and engineering team. The idea that like community teams can be equipped with someone with that deep skill set, yeah. it's really exciting. The best part of this, right, is that so many people look to you for guidance on how to do it. So whatever job description you put together, you know, all these organizations are going to copy that. Yeah. And so think of that responsibility. You know, so many people are going to get hired based upon what you come up with. Like, I know. Well, it's the same for you, right? It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting. That's why I love the work that you and I get to do because like we get to test this stuff. And then if we learn something, we literally like, I think both of us are thinking about it this way. We just share it transparently and say like, go ahead, use it, copy it, use this yeah. template, use this framework, use this job description. Yeah, if that becomes a good standard, that's really cool. Oh, yeah, it's the best thing. Yeah. Okay, so I would love to get a little more specific. Can you share specific examples? I know you shared recently like an email tweak that you did that impacted inactive members. You have a lot of stuff in your book about ways of fixing the banner on your forum in order to improve the experience for community members. Sure. Can you share maybe one or two really good examples of where you kind of dug into the data and found opportunities to improve the community and what you did to actually impact those engagement numbers? Yeah, I think the banner was the one that surprised me the most. This came a few years ago. We were working with Eventbrite on their online community, Event Tribe, I think it was called. And they had a discourse online community and their banner when we arrived was, I don't think they'll hate me for saying this, but it was bad. It was like one of those welcome to online communities. It wasn't any, there was no call to action in the banner at all. And what I love is when clients let me test things. Like this is the difference, right? I get to test so many things and so many different kinds of online communities and see what works and what doesn't. And so what we did is a whole case study on my website about exactly how we did this. But we went systematically looking at how people visited the community, where they came from. And what we designed was a series of uh, custom banners. So it wasn't just one banner. We had different banners based upon whether you were visiting for the very first time whether you had joined and you were a newcomer to that online community and whether you were a top member. I think we had four or five different banners in place. And then we looked very specifically at the call to action, what's going to get people to join the community. And then we also, within the banner, had like this kind of like mini checklist thing. So you join the community. This is the thing to do next. This is the thing to do next. I think we stole that idea from LinkedIn uh, back in the day. And of all the things we've tweaked and tested, in terms of biggest bang for, for your buck, Having a banner with custom logic that shows the different people at different times based on what they've done in the past is such a win. 
I was stunned by the results. We had a 300 times increase in the number of people that were registering in terms of those that were visiting. So a banner essentially should have a clear call to action. It should usually have a search box and it should usually communicate what makes this community unique. Like your community isn't the only game in town. People get help on Google, other communities. Increasingly, they can go to Reddit, they can go to Stack Exchange. Um, there's more places, there's more competition. So why your online community? So when we have welcome to this site, that's a waste. That is a waste of message in a banner. It should be what makes this community unique? Like another client I'm working with, they had something like, um, this is an exclusive online community where top experts can be empowered to engage with one another, collaborate and connect. And it's too wordy. When we narrow it down to what members actually want, we solved that into a really specific message, which was a private place to solve your toughest problems. And so being really specific in what makes this community unique, what the positioning is, that's a really critical thing to have. So the banner, absolutely. I want to dive into that just a little bit before we move on to another one. So that makes a lot of sense, right? So you have a bunch of different banners that show up depending on essentially like what stage in the community journey someone is, if they're brand new, if they're engaged and so on. I know a lot of community builders will hear that and say, that makes sense logically, but wow, that sounds really complex to build. Can you speak just a little bit about like, what does actual implementation look like for that? I think you said you use discourse. That's what they use for that forum. Were you working closely with like the engineering team to build out these like different logical flows or do tools come with this kind of functionality? No, I don't know if it comes with the functionality. For this one, I hired Pat, who I've worked with on a Pat, but there's like a guy named Pat. There's a guy named Pat. So I hired a a designer and a developer named Pat that I've worked with on a bunch of stuff. I think I paid him $500. He did it in two or three days. Honestly, it's not that difficult. Okay. It sounds more difficult than what it is. Like it depends what kind of programming background you have. But once you know what's possible, a banner is easy. And the platform doesn't matter. You can do it on Discourse. You can probably do it on, on Vanilla. I don't know if you can do it on Salesforce. I think they have restrictions on how flexible they can be there. But yeah, it's easy. Yeah. It's essentially just pulling in the data of like when somebody joined the community and that's how it determines what banner to show them. Yeah, pretty much. It's a few designs, a few lines of code. You test and tweak it a little bit. Like this course is kind of annoying because they don't have practice. Um, what's, what's the term? I forgot the term. But like, yeah, so you have to do it to like do it live, which makes it exciting. Oh, okay. But yeah, you wake up at like 1 a.m. in the morning, you work at it for a few yeah. hours and then it's done. Yeah. Okay, cool. So that's a really cool example. And then there was another one you're going to share. You know what? I've got a case study that's going live on your website next week, I think. You put it back by a week because you did your big announcement. Well, it might be up already by the time this episode goes live. Yeah. So basically, we worked with a technology company recently, and it's, it's like a systematic journey. Maybe you can put it in the show notes for this, but it's a systematic journey, the most detailed breakdown of all the things we've done at each stage of using the research to inform what we've done in the community. And I can share like some examples here if it helps. Like One of the things is that we looked at the super users that were engaging. And we're looking at how helpful people are finding their responses. One of the things that really mattered is what's the average helpfulness score. And what we found is that some soup users, the ratings that they were getting were a lot lower than others. And that means that they, some of them were doing more harm than good with their responses. So if you're just looking at the level of activity, it's really, really high. But if you're looking at how many people are actually finding their responses that useful, it's like, okay, well, maybe these soup users shouldn't be part of that program. Most people aren't even tracking things like that. And so there's huge wins like that all over the place. Another one was my favorite one, actually, was a community of teachers that I worked on years ago. So they had, I think, two consultants before me that were working on that. 
And teachers, I mean, you're like married to one, one, right? They're busy. Very busy. They are busy, like on another level of busy. And the two consultants uh, before me, they did the analysis and they came up with the amazing conclusion that their members were too busy to participate in this online community. Sure. Which is exactly what the data said. And they came up with ways to make the community easier to use, to make it require a lot less time to engage in that community because teachers are busy. And that sounds like it makes sense. Like it sounds like it's a natural thing to do. But what they've done is that they've looked at the data, but they're not seeing, they're not seeing what they need to see from this data. They're not seeing what members actually want. Making the community easier to use doesn't increase their motivation to visit that community in the first place. And what we did was something completely different. I think the story is in the book, actually. What we did was looked at the community, looked at the research that's been done and decided, let's make this a community for teachers to share their time-saving tips. Mm-hmm. Now, suddenly you've completely changed the nature of that online community. You've looked at the research and you're not trying to make the community easier to use. You're making it to be about the very damn thing that people want this community to be about. You're providing this unique use. And then after we did that, the participation rose for years after that. And so sometimes you can get all of the data, but you've got to see it the right way as well. And I think time and time again, people see the data and they find ways to ignore it or not quite interpret it the right way. And I think maybe part of the X factor and what I and some consultants do is have that kind of background that we bring into us and say, hey, this is what the data is really telling you. This is how you use it. And so there's so many wins like that. I mean, often you don't even have to do the research again. You can use what data is already out there. Yeah. But like, oh man, there's so many examples on my website. But the case study I have live going on your site in a couple of weeks or next week is that is like the ultimate case study I've ever written. Everything is in there. Yeah. I love it. All right. Well, everyone have to check it out on cmxhub.com when it goes live. Should be live by the time this episode goes. I love that example too. I saw it in the book and I really liked this idea that I think you could apply to other communities too, because it's a common complaint that we hear. Like our members are too busy to use our community. Oh yeah. I've heard that same thing for executives. I've heard that same thing for lawyers. I've heard the same thing for all these groups that are very busy. Well, why not make it a community specifically focused on sharing time-saving techniques? Now you're solving a problem for all those people. The best one, I was once talking to someone from AARP, like the American Retired Association. Something, yeah. And they said the same, like the exact same, same thing. Our members are too busy to participate. I'm like, wow. I mean, no offense to people that are retired, but if that audience is too busy... Yeah. <laughs> Everyone is too busy. No one has this magical time that's going to... They have a lot of uh, woodworking to do. Yeah. And so it's a priority issue, but sometimes like with some audiences, you just got to be like, you know what? You got to see the data for what it is. Developers are another example. Like I've had communities of developers before where I asked the developers what they want and they're like, good documentation. Yeah. I'm like, okay, but what kind of discussions do you want? They're like, good documentation. Good documentation. I'm like, yeah. (laughs) What kind of content and rewards do you want? They're like, Good documentation is its own reward. <laughs> and sometimes you just got to see the data for what it is and not for something that isn't there. Yeah. Like, it's difficult at times because I think when we come up with an idea for community, we always have a vision of what we want that community to be. But you've got to follow the data and it's so hard to do at times because it clashes with your vision so often. Yeah, it's really hard when you're like, you have this like dream of what it will all look like and then people yeah. just don't do the thing that you imagine them doing. It's like, come on, it'll be so good. Just trust me. And you can't force people to do anything they're not motivated to do. Yeah, every time. And the developer one's a great example because you share the Stack Overflow example in your book where they have all these rules that are meant to limit interaction. It's actually like be all about being very specific in how you're asking the question and being very specific in how you're answering question. And they're trying to reduce the amount of answers because developers don't want to 
engage in how you're feeling about the problem you're trying to solve. They just want to know exactly how to solve this very specific problem. Yeah, Stack Overflow is, it's amazing to me that more people haven't copied what they've done. Because mm. there were online communities for developers before then. There's a great blog post somewhere by uh, Joel Spolsky, is it? Who wrote about the background, what it was like before then, what it's like afterwards, and how they came up with this idea. And if you are, for a lot of online communities, you don't want a lot of responses to questions. If you are someone that wants an answer, all you want is one answer, which is the best one. Like You don't want a whole discussion about, well, I think this works, or I think that works. You just want someone to be like, hey, I did this. This is what works. And there's obviously sort of a lot of caveats to that and exceptions and things like that. But what made Stack Overflow unique is that they just don't want as much engagement as possible. They're trying to provide a utility to the web and they understand their audience. They understand that this isn't a place to come and chat. I mean, you can come and chat. You can go and chat anywhere else on the web. This is where the place where you provide answers, where you ask questions. And not only that, you have to ask questions well. Like if you ask a bad question, it gets removed. Hi everyone, Anne-Marie Pollocky-Dinkle here, event manager at CMX, and I am crashing this podcast to cordially invite you all to CMX Summit 2021 Rise. On August 31st through September 2nd, join seasoned practitioners, emerging leaders, and industry experts for three jam-packed days of speakers, hands-on workshops, and networking with the world's largest group of community builders everything you need to rise up and thrive. Head over to cmxhub.com to RSVP now. See you there. And so they had this whole, if you tried to ask a question on Stack Overflow, I don't know if you tried it, but it's like a whole nudge system. They have a column alongside, be like, include this, include what you've tried before, include this information. And it's so useful. Like, and it amazes me. That Stack Overflow have pioneered all these amazing ideas and the top platforms, as much as I loved them, haven't caught up on that yet. There's so many great things they're doing. And they've just been sold for what, like a billion? Eight billion. Eight billion. They sold for eight billion. Yeah. That's ridiculous. I mean, yeah. And that's, I'm not, I thought it was like 1.8 actually. Maybe it was 1.8. I remember the number eight. This is how weird like the whole world is. We don't know if it's 1 billion or like 8 billion. You're right. It's 1.8 billion. I mean, yeah. What's the difference between 1.8 billion and 8 billion these days? But this is the current state of the world. I wouldn't be surprised if it was 8 billion. Like these numbers have no meaning anymore. Okay. Yeah. It was 1.8. You're right. Uh, anyway, but like that's all because they created their unique culture and they stuck to it. They made a really difficult decision or perhaps they yeah. had a vision right at the beginning and they stuck to it. And so many online communities could copy this and create these really unique rules that yeah. are a lot stricter, which means there's going to be accusations of elitism. There's going to be people that like contributing a Wikipedia article. You're like, oh, I'm not doing it well, so I'm not going to do it. There's a lot of that, but it works. And sometimes you've got to ignore the criticism to stick to a rule that makes your community thrive and make it unique and different from anything else that's out there in the world. And Stack Overflow is the most amazing example of that I've seen. And I get so disappointed at times when I do these strategies that involve some aspect of this. And the client's like, well, we don't want people feeling that they aren't welcome or they're not good enough to participate. Yeah. And, but you know what? Sometimes you've got to create something that's different in the world. And creating this different, you've got to make tough decisions. And your rules and your guidelines are what can make a community a unique culture, make it so valuable and indispensable. It's just... Totally. Yeah, it's tough. I get that it's tough, but yeah, it's a shame. It's hard, yeah. We've had this even with our community where we have like the no self-promotion rule in the Facebook group because 
Facebook groups are one single feed. If you start letting people promote stuff, it'll take over the whole feed. Yeah, yeah. And I've had people like share feedback. We're like, well, you should let us do it anyway. And I'm like, well, this is an important rule. So I hear you and we're not going to do that. But then like, and I say it very nicely, but they get so upset. I've had people leave our community. I've had them like attack us publicly because of it. All because we're like, you can't promote your own blog post in our community. But that's what keeps the community very different from a lot of other Facebook groups that are just overrun with self-promotion. And I think you give a bunch of shout outs to Priya Parker on this topic in your book. Oh, what a fantastic person. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible book, incredible community builder. And, And that's kind of one of her core premises in the art of gathering. She'll have events where you can't share what you do or you can't share your name or... I know, that's amazing. Having these kinds of constraints forces people to have a much more unique and compelling experience. Yeah, and like Priya Park is an amazing example. Imagine having a meetup of like parents where you're not allowed to talk about your kids. Yeah, I love that. Or like the first person that like checks their phone, pays the bill. And these kind of things are going to annoy some people, but at the same time, these kinds of like rules that seem wild, they're actually so attractive to certain kinds of groups. And there's so many Me Too online communities. Oh, that's not a term I should use, but there's so many like, you know, similar online communities that are out there at the moment. And we don't need just another community. We need another community that has a really unique value or viewpoint to the world. And so you have to be willing to ride out the criticism because people want everything to be bland and normal totally. to create an experience that is different and amazing. And that is so hard to do. But if you pull it off, like there's 1 billion or 8 billion in there for you. So yeah, exactly. It's 1.8 billion. 1.8 billion. Let's all clarify. <laughs> Just a small chunk of change for a community. Yeah. There's one more data point I wanted to ask you about. You talk about in your book, which I think is really valuable because I get this question all the time of how do we know we're on the right track? How do we know that our community is going to be successful? What benchmarks should we be looking for? And you shared three data points that point to a community being on the right track to becoming successful. What are those data points and how did you find them? Yeah, this is one of those projects that I was really... It's so funny at times. This is why you personally annoy me so much because there are times where I do all this like... (laughs) All this research and like scraping data and analyzing it. And I'm like, okay, these are the results. And you'll say some like two message tweet that will get a million more shares than what I get. (laughs) And I'm like, God damn it. Like you annoy me so much with that. So let me talk about this one. This was, I think, pulling a lot of data from the discourse platform. I think we had a few hundred online communities that we were looking at. Scraping the data, and it was data from all kinds. So we didn't just pick the top ones like we do with some projects. It was all kinds. And seeing which communities over a period of time took off and which didn't. Which became a success? At what point did the critical mass, the inflection point begin? And we tried to come up with some approximate numbers. It's not exact. Like I've rounded off the numbers a little bit here so we can remember them a little bit easier. Sure. But from what we found, that to reach a critical mass of activity, and again, this is limited to a form, it's not a Facebook group, it's limited to external communities, not employee communities. But what we found is that there are certain metrics that seem to be in place in these communities. One is that you have 100 members that are contributing a month. That is 100 members that are making a post each month. You're getting around 300 posts a month as well, or around 10 posts a day. And then you're getting around 10 new registrations a day, and you're reaching that number within three months. So that's 100 members, 300 posts, 10 registrations. That's a level that's a good target to get for within three, three months. But it depends tremendously upon the type of community. Like a lot of customer support communities, they switch it on and they've got a million people that need help from day one. But if you're not that kind of 
audience, then yeah, this is a good target to aim for. Yeah, 100 members, 300 posts, 10 registrations a day. And it's not that many, but if you can focus on a narrow group of members to reach that level, then usually you're taking off, you're reaching that critical mass of activity. That's a time when things shine. Yeah, I love that. Those are super helpful metrics. I'm curious just to take, get your take real quick on tools because so much of the work that you do requires being able to dive into the data and analytics and create some of these more custom experiences. But there's this kind of full spread of tools. And I think in both of our books, we kind of map it out to similar levels. There's kind of the free, cheap level of Facebook groups. You're on another platform, Facebook groups, Slack, Discord, Twitch, LinkedIn groups, things like that. Then you have the mid-level, which don't have a ton of customization, but you can still own it, own the data and have it on your site like Circle or Disciple or Mighty Networks. And then you have the more enterprise level of vanillas and higher logics and coros that fully customizable and integrated. Of course, the price goes up exponentially as you move through those three levels. But what's your take right now on how businesses should be thinking about selecting tools when on one hand, in some ways harder than ever to drive engagement on your own platform because these social platforms are soaking up so much of people's attention. On the other hand, your whole pitch is kind of like, you need to dive into this data and get a lot more specific in the experience you're providing for your community members based on where they're at. And that just doesn't seem like it's going to be possible unless you have one of these like really enterprise customized tools that allow you to kind of have those customizations. Yeah, it's so complex with technology. And I think everything you said was completely right. And it's kind of a... At the lower tier, there's a golden age of platforms and technologies that are coming along now, like really good platforms that are really cheap, really great. And you can even design an online community experience that's pretty good with tools that are free, like Medium for blog posts or like some simple event tool to host events or Bevy for for events, obviously. Have like a Slack for like discussions and Zapier integration. You can really stitch together an amazing community experience that most members will be happy with for tools that are free. So I think the question is, why would you go beyond that? Like, what do you really need that's beyond that? And also, if your members are there today, then there are great benefits of that as well. And so I think there's a couple of things to be aware of. Like, Facebook groups can be fantastic. There's also this really big danger that at any point they can change a thing and someone can complain about your group and it disappears and yeah, you're done. Right. I mean, that you can build up thousands of members and that happens. So I think that's one concern. I think it largely depends upon the brand as well. Like when I wrote Buzzing Communities, this is one of the things where experience helps. I wrote Buzzing Communities and I said, well, first, just begin with a tool that's free and easy to use and then upgrade as your community grows. I think that's not practical in a lot of situations today because if you are Apple or someone, you're not going to use like Facebook groups to start your online community, right? Like you need like privacy, you need security, you need like a certain level of of brand. Well, like some do, right? Like Peloton does. Some do, but it's less common. I mean, there's the big trend as well is like the privacy and the data security. Those kind of things are huge and that really impacts what platforms people can use. True. So I think if you're going to use an enterprise level tool, it should be because you are expecting either a lot of your brand will just naturally demand it. You're just the kind of brand that pays for those tools. You're not going to use tools that are free and cheap. It should be because you have unique privacy and data security needs, or it's because you need search traffic. Search traffic is most communities where most people find most answers. And that's not going to happen on Slack. It's not going to happen on Facebook groups. It's not going to happen on social media channels. So a major reason to use an enterprise level tool 
It's for search traffic and then optimizing the whole experience beyond that. But yeah, at the higher level, I think we need a broader perspective in what kind of platforms make sense for each use case. I think most platforms at the moment are trying to do all the same things. And I think we're seeing the acquisitions in this space. I think we're seeing the number of top tier platforms shrinking instead of growing. And I'm not sure that's a good thing as much as I might get in trouble for saying that, but like, I'm not sure that's necessarily a good thing. I think it'd be good to have more choice. It'd be good to have platforms that are known for specific things. Like, I don't know about you, but I feel like a lot of the top platforms at the moment, there are some changes between them, different features, different needs, but they're starting to blend in together at this point. Yeah. Yeah. You have to get pretty far in the weeds to know like what the difference is between a few of the top platforms. And there are differences, but it's like really in-depth features. The the high-level stuff is all going to be there. Yeah, for sure. I agree. I mean, I would love to see a wider range of different kinds of tools. And like you said, I, I think there's a little bit of a renaissance happening right now in community technology, and we're seeing those tools start to rise. They're still very early stage, but we're seeing tools like things like Orbit with two eyes, where they can make introductions at scale using AI between community members. Oh, that's cool. We're seeing tools that are focused on the CRM side of community and connecting all these disparate Slacks and Facebooks and forums and events and everything. One thing that excited me about Bevy when we joined the team is that we weren't going to do forums. We're going to focus specifically on community-driven events and chapter programs. Mm. And so we can integrate with all the other forum and conversational platforms In the virtual event space, we're seeing a whole lot of different kinds of experiences and people trying to innovate on things beyond the standard Zoom format. So we're starting to see it, but I don't think many of those tools have reached kind of enterprise status yet where they have the level of data security and integrations and things that big enterprises would need to see in order to use those tools. But I think we'll get there in the next one to two years. I feel like as well at the lower end, like I'm excited by it, but I'm also aware of the history of the lower end of community platforms with tools like Ning, for example, like investors seem really willing to fund very similar kinds of platforms that are low, that begin cheap or sell advertising. And then when they try to scale up, they hit a limit and it becomes more more of a challenge. So I hope it works out for them. I think we'll probably see a shakeout of some of them in two or three years from uh, this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of them are going to be scooped up by the bigger players. Some of them will die. Some of them will become their own big players in their own right. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how community technology evolves. What would you say is the biggest gap right now in community technology that you would like to see filled? Like, What could tools do that would make your job as a community analyst and consultant and strategist much easier? I think the obvious thing is the analytics, yeah. in my opinion, is nowhere near as good as what it should be. Mm. And even like, I feel like because, I don't know, platforms just don't seem to prioritize it the way I thought they would. And every year I have calls with all these platforms. They're like, yeah, this is a big priority for us. And then they release something. And I'm like, is that it? Like, there's nowhere near the level of integration with other data that it should be. Yeah. And I'm even seeing a trend with some of the clients at the very top end that they're just developing their own platforms now. So yeah, I think connecting community data with customer data would be the best one. And there are some tools that do it, but it's very difficult to do. And it means that a lot of the ROI metrics or behavior metrics that we should have, we don't have. Yeah, And I think it becomes very hard to prove the value of community. And I'm curious why they don't do it. Like, I'm curious, why wouldn't you do this? Like, it's a lot of work, but it feels like a win. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. 
we'll probably have to save this conversation for another time, but I'd love to dig in with you on some of these things we've been thinking about on the Bevy side, on the CMX side. We've made actually a lot of progress on being able to connect community events back to Salesforce to connect it back to ROI and be able to show exactly how people attending events are serving as touch points in, in the sales journey. Now, events are, I think, a low-hanging fruit for community teams because events are these points in time that you can track as a touch point. It's more difficult when you're talking about forum or conversational-based communities because you only have like a couple touch points by default. You have like when they join, and that's pretty much it, right? Like when they join. Yeah. Maybe when they sign up for a newsletter or something else like that. But I think where there's an opportunity is if we can provide some of the data analysis, like a lot of what you do, to say, okay, if this person's reached this level of activity, like they've posted at least 10 times in the last three months as just an arbitrary example, now we can actually mark that as a touch point of like this person has become quote unquote active. And now we can tie that back into our CRM and have that be another way of qualifying leads or showing kind of the way that the community is impacting the pipeline. Yeah, there's one client I worked with not too long ago that had almost assigned every action in their community to a value. They looked at whether these people bought more based on what they did. And there are pros and cons of that. One is that it makes everything really easy to look at and understand. The con is that it's correlational, not causational. So it's really easy to see if someone attended an event and then bought more, but it's hard to decide, was it the event that made them buy more or the people that just attend events more naturally to buy more? And so having that kind of causational data is more difficult to get. I mean, I did a study a while back. You might have seen it, like a Harvard Business Review thing I published. Really looked at what happens if you shut a community down for a certain amount. or well, not shut it down, but hit the community, massively reduce search traffic, and then see what happens. And if you include it on the show notes, I'd love to do that. But like, yeah, then you get data that is indisputable, but it's really hard to do that because... Right, I remember you writing about that. Who wants to close their community down for a while. But the data is like indisputable at that level. But there's some things that are just always going to be difficult to prove the value of. And I think loyalty is one of them. Saying that community increases the loyalty of customers, it's very hard to get causational data on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I want to have this debate. <laughs> yeah, sure. There's a couple of interesting things there. One is, are we talking about retention or actual like new users and new customers? I think it's easier to track new customers and the impact on that than it is on existing customers and loyalty. Because yeah. loyalty is just like a little bit more of a complex understanding of different experiences that lead them to renew or not. Whereas the marketing and sales pipeline is a pretty well-established flow and you can kind of understand where people are in that journey. The other thing that I've been thinking a lot about, which I'm curious to get your thoughts on, and then we'll then I'll wrap us up for our rapid fire question round. But it's that what I've learned from working really closely with our CMO and our VP of sales in our company is that the truth is, Everything is correlation in marketing and sales. Like there are certain things, maybe you know what the first touch is and the last touch. Maybe you know that someone clicked an ad on an iPhone and then they went and bought it immediately. So you can now correlate that or show that as kind of causation. But for the most part, all the things that marketing is tracking and a lot of the things that sales is tracking are all just correlation as well. And they do just assign scores to like, okay, they downloaded this ebook, they've read these articles, they booked a demo. All of these things are just touch points that they assign some sort of score to weight it. And then at the end, if someone signs up for the product, they could say, okay, here are all the touch points and the weights. And so we can allocate 20% of that to 
advertising 40% of that to content, 30% of that to community, and so on. But nobody can say that like them looking at that ad or them reading that article or them downloading that ebook is what caused them to make a purchasing decision. It's always going to be a collection of different touch points. Yeah, I agree with you in most cases. I mean, it's possible to do a withholding test, right? Like if you have like two cities of like a similar size and you issue leaflets out or leaflets or whatever, like in like one city and like not the others, you should be able to get some data back about what the impact of a leaflet is because you've got one group that is getting it and one group that isn't. So the problem is I think a lot of those tests are difficult. And the problem with like assigning a value, like 20% is due to the community, is that a lot of it brings the pre-existing bias of whether people think a community is valuable or not. So yeah, I mean, I think this is such a big topic and this might be great for our next debate. Yeah, I mean, it's such a big topic and it's so challenging. And yeah, I don't think we're ever going to get out of this trap in the near term, but we need better data though, for sure. I think, yeah, we agree we need better data. Yeah, we need better data. But I think like we also just as community professionals need to not be so hard on ourselves that we can't show exactly causation because like the truth is most people in marketing and sales can't do that either. And yeah, there are nuances specific to community, but I can tell you from experience, literally just being able to show that data that like, look, these people attended our events and then they ended up becoming a sales accepted lead. And then they ended up becoming a closed one deal. When I can bring that back to our team and show them that data that's helped me get so much more buy-in for getting more resources and investing in these programs by being able to come prepared with that data rather than just saying, eh, I'm not going to show anything because it's just correlation. So I've come up with the best idea ever. Like That solves both of the issues that we have here. So what we'll do, like during CMX, go have it in like Hawaii or something, right? Okay, CMX Hawaii. And we all take one month off. We'll close all of our communities down for a month and then we'll see what happens. This sounds reasonable. That's a win, right? Like <laughs> that's a causational thing that we can prove. Hey, we shut the communities down. We took a whole month off and then we'll know for sure. Yeah, yeah, we could do that. You should get to work on that. <laughs> sounds very reasonable. But I can with confidence say that if we were to stop doing CMX events, the number of leads and closed deals that Bevy would have would go down immediately. Yeah, absolutely. If nothing else, just because I know a certain amount of those leads are actually sourced from CMX, like they were the first touch point. Yeah, yeah. But even ones that weren't sourced, we also know anecdotally from our sales team that when they get on a call and someone's like, oh yeah, I know CMX, I love CMX, it just creates so much more trust and an opportunity for them to be able to have that established trust with the prospect that leads them to be more likely to close the deal. So we're not going to shut down all of our events for a year, but I can say with great confidence that we would see an immediate impact on the bottom line. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I agree. I mean, I've gotten leads from speaking at CMX. So I imagine if you're hosting the event. Yeah, yeah, there you go. All right. Well, we'll have to continue our debate, but I think it's a really interesting topic. And I know you and I have been thinking about this for probably 30 <laughs> years combined. So... <laughs> Sure. Okay, Rich, I have a hundred more questions for you, but I have to keep us moving into our rapid fire question round. And now we'll just have more stuff to talk about the next time you come back on the show, <laughs> if you choose to do that. Absolutely. All right. Are you ready for the rapid fire question round? Yeah, I am. All right. Let's do this. Question number one, what book has had the biggest impact on your life? So let me change the question. So I'll have two. In terms of the one book, the book that had the biggest impact at the right time, Seth Godin, Permission Marketing. Mm. Mostly because it was a completely new way of thinking about marketing. And I'd just done a marketing degree at that time. And I was like, okay, this makes a lot more sense than the four years I just spent studying for a degree. Another book that everyone should read, just because it's a really amazing book, is called Endurance. 
by Alfred Lansing about Shackleton's Voyage. Like, just trust me, it will blow your mind. It's a true story. Honestly, just get a book. It's old. It's fantastic. Awesome. I love good old books. I'm reading one called Watership Down now that another guest recommended to me. That's a very old book. Oh, awesome. It's about rabbits. I'll let you know if it's okay, getting only like less awesome. a quarter. Yeah, it's a little slow. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but it's starting <laughs> to pick up. It's English, so maybe you'll like it. All right. If you had a magic wand and could get any data about communities that you can't get today, what data or what insight would you most want to get? Yeah, really clean data that matched buying behavior with member behavioral data. Yeah, that's it. So like what we just talked about. Yeah, exactly. How members participation leads to actual sales decisions. All right. We'll get working on that. All right. Number three, what's a go-to community engagement tactic or conversation starter that you like to use in your communities? I think everyone should stop using, say, one interesting thing about yourself because those are the worst things to come up with answers ever. I think a lot of these questions are good. What is the one thing that you did for this? I think all those kind of questions are good. What I'm loving doing is using a neural wall. I'm loving the app so much. I think neural is one of those tools that is really growing. So having everyone come up with ideas and suggestions on something that's relevant to the community topic, I think that's fantastic. So I can't think of one specific question, but what is your favorite, whatever? What is your best advice? What would you tell someone new to this field? All those kind kind of things are fantastic. Yeah, love it. Cool. All right, next question. Tell me one interesting thing about yourself. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Okay, next question is, what's your favorite video game? You and I both started out in community and video games. So what's your favorite? Yeah, you're the Tony Hawk thing, right? Tony Hawk. I mean, I played a lot of games. Tony Hawk was like my first community that I ran. I spent 10 years of my life playing Counter-Strike. So that is Mm. like my main game, how I got into all this. I play a crazy amount of chess. If anyone wants to chat to challenge me to a game of chess, like I am down for that. I think the biggest one at the moment is Population One. I got like the Oculus uh, Quest when the pandemic began because everyone is like trapped inside, and a VR like headset is amazing for that. Yeah, Yeah. you're sold on VR. Yeah, this is what you can do when you don't have kids, dude. (laughs) You can do whatever you (laughs) (laughs) want. It sounds like a great thing to do when you have kids. You get to go into this virtual reality and ignore them. Maybe, (laughs) maybe you should try. All right. So do you think we're all going to be living in Ready Player One style Oasis in the next 10 years? I really hope not. No, I think that it's just too heavy, too bulky, but the games are fun. The games are really, really fun. They'll get lighter. What if we make it lighter? Then can we all live in a virtual world? I mean, I feel like for the last year I've been doing that. So maybe (laughs) we'll see. Maybe. That'll be another good topic in the future. Whether or not all communities are going to exist in virtual reality in the future. I think so, but we'll table that one. Okay, who in the community world would you most like to take for lunch? I'd love to do that trip again with like you, me, Rachel and Jim from the round table. Bring along like Brian, Erica Cool, uh, John Bacon, Carrie as well. I think that'd be like a really good lunch and everyone I've missed out, obviously. That would be an epic lunch. A lot of community influencers at that table. (laughs) Yeah. All right, what's the community product you wish existed? I don't really have a good answer for this one. One that I really liked, but doesn't seem to have grown, was the icebreaker tool that you guys used a couple of years ago at CMX. It was like yeah. a chat roulette style, style thing, but without the porn. And so like, <laughs> yeah, I really liked it. And I really liked the guy. I don't, I don't know what happened to it. I don't know what it's called, but like, I like that. They just changed their name. I don't remember what they changed it to, but they're still going. They're building a platform. Great team. Great tool. Oh, awesome. Uh, it was called icebreaker.video was the website. Oh, that was the name? Oh, awesome. Yeah. Okay. Icebreaker was the name and it was icebreaker.video was the website. They changed the name. So I'm sure if URL, it will redirect you, but that's a great one. All right. If you were forced to go in-house and work on community for one company, what company would you choose? 
CMX, so I can bring it down, <laughs> bring it down from the inside. I think a lot. <laughs> we're hiring. That'd be wild. We need a data analyst. Well, here we go. I mean, also, so some, I think a lot of people go to places where they have a great online community and that's all great. I think it might be more of a challenge and more fun to go to a place where they're doing community quite badly at the moment. And I feel there's huge room for improvement. I mean, a friend of mine, Phoebe uh, Venkat, like, we, you know, a yeah. lot of people know her, does this so well. She goes into these places and builds these systems and communities and places that are challenging and you get this amazing impact of seeing what you've done. So I'd be interested in those places that I want to do community, especially well at the moment. I don't want to name them because, you know, I want to work with them at some point. But like, <laughs> yeah, I think those are the ones that would be most interesting to me. The brands that are going through a tough time, like WeWork might be a fascinating one to work with, you know, because all the drama they're going through. One. But I'm drawn to that because I yeah. feel like you can really see the impact of your work if you go somewhere that isn't great at the moment and turn it around. I yeah. think that'd be amazing. It's true. I feel that. I've definitely always been like I always find at least a, a interesting thought exercise. Like, what if I joined Uber and tried to like fix the culture, we work, and tried to help community? Yeah, it'd be an incredible one, right? Like you'd see the impact. Yeah, because clearly they like solving a problem for people. They've grown exponentially, but community is just something that they need help with. So, all right, what's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? I think weird is such like a negative term, but what I was going to say is be like, oh, you shouldn't use the word weird. But actually, no, I've been a part of one that's weird. It's someone okay. started a community for psychopaths once, but <laughs> they didn't know who to... You were part of it? No. Well, I joined it for sure because I'm curious. This explains a lot, Rich. <laughs> but you know what happened? I joined it because I love seeing all these quirky online communities. And it's a bunch of people pretending to be psychopaths. Oh, that's weird. Because how do you know who's a psychopath and who isn't? And their discussions were just weird and awkward. I think some of the communities for like pets are being interesting, where people like pretend to be dogs. There's one where everyone like pretended mm. to be ants. Like, I don't know if you saw like the Facebook group a while back. No. That was probably the weirdest one I've joined. But I've probably joined like... That is very weird. Thousands of these to see their onboarding journeys and to benchmark them and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I find when people pretend to be ants is quite refreshing at this point. How does one pretend to be an ant? I will send you the link. Like you have been missing out on life. I mean, I don't know what wow. you've been doing with your life, but I don't know. You've been missing out. Messing up. I've been missing out. I will send you the link. This is my deepest form of FOMO. There's an ant <laughs> community that I have not been a part of. Okay, last question. If you were to find yourself on your deathbed and you need to condense all of your life lessons into one Twitter-sized piece of advice for the rest of the world on how to live, what would that advice be? This is the most San Francisco West Coast question ever. Like these kinds of questions, honestly. I'm trying to know the real rich here, all right? Open up. I'm trying to think of something really interesting to say. <laughs> I'm quite, pri quite private about a lot of things, actually. And crack that shell. I think just go and do interesting things. Like nothing is ever as good or as bad as what you think it's going to be. So just go and do interesting things. Like really, I think that's it. Like I wish I had been like such a cliche, but... I think there's so many things you hold back because of fear of what might happen. Just go and do interesting things because otherwise you're going to be on your deathbed and think, oh, I did no interesting things. So just do interesting things. Try things, see what works, see what happens. Wish I had something more deeper than that, but yeah. Hey, that's what's meaningful to you. That's what you've learned and what guides you. So yeah. I think it's good to hear what works for people and that's something that you've lived by. You definitely challenge a lot of assumptions. You definitely push a lot of boundaries. You've definitely done that in the community space. So I see you practice that and... I think it's good advice. For better or worse, for better or worse. Yes, that's right. <laughs> All right. And last question, where can people go to find you and continue to learn from you? They should all go buy your book, Build Your Community. Where can they find the book? Yes, please buy the book. 
Amazon.com, or if you're in some weird part of the world that Amazon doesn't exist in, then the bookdepository.com site apparently does free shipping. And to find me, you can go to www.feverbee.com or at Rich Millington on Twitter. Awesome. Well, Rich, it is always a pleasure, my friend. Every time we chat, I learn a whole lot of new things. I laugh a lot. I feel challenged. <laughs> Likewise. Thank you so much. And definitely all of you should go out and get this book. I've read all three of Rich's books now. And he was right. Those first two were just off. But this one... <laughs> so true, right? <laughs> no, they're all really good and very timely for when you publish them. And this one, I learned a ton from it. It's filled with data, filled with a lot of this research that we talked about here today and so much more. It's all laid out very practically in order of like exactly how you think about community strategy and how you would go through a program. And so uh highly recommend you all go pick it up. Uh, it'll definitely help you build your community in a more intentional and data-driven way. Rich, thanks so much for everything you do. Thanks for joining me on the show and excited to have you back again soon. Absolutely. Thank you for uh, having me. Of course. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.